You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Welcome, everyone. Happy New Year. Oh, gosh, it's a great year, huh? Hey, thank you for being here in the cold. Your presence here tells me one of two things. Either you're very tough or you're not from around here. So thank you, whichever way that applies to you. Thank you for being here. My name's Fritz Hager. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, I get the pleasure to preach today. I want to take you back to the fall of 1991, when that great poet, philosopher, and theologian Garth Brooks had a song that was very popular. The song, in fact, it went to number one. It was called Shameless. Maybe you remember it. And as I researched this song, I found out it was not written by Garth Brooks. It was actually written by Billy Joel, which makes Billy Joel, I guess, the great philosopher and theologian. But anyway, this song, Shameless, is about a man who falls in love with a woman. I mean, he falls in love with this woman. If you don't know the song, here's, here's how it goes. I'm, I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read the words to you. The opening lyrics. Well, I'm shameless when it comes to loving you. I'll do anything you want me to. I'll do anything at all. And I'm standing here for all the world to see. I'm shameless. This man is so smitten that he loses his pride control over his life, even his self-respect, he will do anything to keep this woman who he loves with him. Just so happens that the fall of 1991 was also in the middle of the five months between my first date with Serena and the day we got engaged. Day after Christmas, 1991. And just like the guy in this song, I fell in love with that woman. And I'm sure I was very annoying to be around back then. I talked about her all the time. I always wanted to be with her. Burned up the interstate between Fort Hood and San Antonio so we could be together. And it was awesome. We dated for five months. We were engaged for six months and then got married that summer. And I remember at some point in this process, my younger sister Leslie coming to me and saying, Fritz, you are just like the guy in that song. You're shameless. She goes, I've never seen you like this before. You are in love, and you don't care who knows it. Shameless. Have you ever been shameless about something? Cared so much about something or so one that you wanted everyone to know about it. Maybe it's when you fell in love with your spouse. Maybe it was when the first time you looked down into the eyes of your baby. Maybe it was your first grandchild. You grandparents are certainly shameless. Or maybe it's something really important like being a Cowboy fan and you're looking forward to the day when they win the Super Bowl and you're showing up to work that Monday morning with your face paint on. You are that shameless. Well, our passage today is Romans 1, 16 and 17, and it's the Apostle Paul who says that he's shameless about the gospel. 
Before we jump into the text, I want to make a comparison, a personal one. So today, after almost 25 years of marriage, I can tell you that after six kids, after changes in jobs and professions, after moves, after seasons of great struggle and pain, after the loss of a baby, times of great joy, that today I love Serena more than I did 25 years ago. It's a much more informed love. It's a tested love. It's a changed love. But it's been 25 years since anyone ever accused me of being shameless about it. And it shouldn't be like that. Shouldn't be like that for us and the gospel. We shouldn't be covert, closet Christians. We should have that same enthusiasm for the beauty, for the love of the gospel that we had the day we first believed. Today, we should be just as undone by experiencing that same freedom, that same relief that came the moment we believed and the weight, the unbearable burden of our sin was transferred from our bent backs to the shoulders of Jesus on the cross. And we should feel that so much so that we can't help but tell others about it. We should be like all those new Christians. You know, maybe you see one every once in a while. They're annoying. All they want to do is talk about Jesus. And they share the gospel with their friends and their family and the people they work with. They just won't shut up about it. Call them kind of newlywed Christians. Or maybe grandparent Christians. They're shameless. They're excited. They are passionate. And they are eager. It's my prayer today that our passage today will help us be more like that. So turn or click or swipe with me to Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, whatever device you have, media you have. And what we'll do is look at how these two verses tell us three things about the gospel. We're going to learn about the offense of the gospel, the operation of the gospel, and the outcome of the gospel. The offense the operation, and the outcome. And then we're going to look at the implications for us with that truth today. So beginning in verse 16 of chapter 1, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Before we dig into the details of this, I want to give you just a quick orientation to Romans and how it impacts the interpretation of this passage. This book was written by Paul, who was a Jew, who was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It was probably written somewhere around 57 AD, and it was written to a church in Rome that was initially predominantly built and filled and led by Jews. And then the emperor Claudius kicks all the Jews out of Rome, and the church is taken over by Gentiles. 
And sometime later, the Jews come back. And so these brothers and sisters, these Jews and Gentiles, are now trying to figure out how do they relate to each other in the same church, in the same family of God. So let's start with what I'm calling the offense of the gospel, which is most of verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So what's the gospel? And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Brent defined the gospel as the good news. And he went to 1 Corinthians 15, also written by Paul, that says... This is Paul saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So here's Paul's gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So boiling that passage down to what we would say the gospel is, it's the good news that Paul preached that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ who paid the price for our sins, which is death. And that he lay in the ground for three days and was resurrected from the dead and that there were many witnesses to that. So why do I say this section is the offense of the gospel? What's so offensive about that? I think there are three reasons. The first is wrapped up in the first few words, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would Paul be ashamed? When you hear the word ashamed, we think today primarily in emotional or psychological terms. It's a feeling that we have of embarrassment. But here, biblically, it's a statement of Paul's complete confidence and his total trust, his total reliance on the gospel. Compare that with the words of Jesus in Luke 9, verse 26, where he says, For whoever is ashamed, it's the same Greek word, of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father. But it's also a confidence that is so strong that he's willing to suffer consequences for it. This confidence, this not being ashamed, is closely associated with suffering. Here's what Paul tells his protege, Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Therefore, do not be ashamed, it's the same Greek word, of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose, and grace. So the first reason we know the gospel is offensive is applied in the meaning of what the consequences of not being ashamed are going to be. It's going to be suffering. In fact, the biblical promise is that the gospel is supposed to provoke a strong reaction one way or the other, but particularly from unbelievers. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 6, that those who are not offended by him are blessed by Him. Paul says that those who don't believe, to those who don't believe, we, those who believe, are the aroma of death. Hard to get stronger than that. 
In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So wrapped into the meaning of the word ashamed, as well as the biblical testimony, we should expect that the unbelieving world will be offended by the gospel. But beyond because the Bible tells me so, why is that? Why are they offended? I think the answer is found in the last part of this section. Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for salvation. I think that's the crux of the offense. This gospel for salvation is not the work of man, it's the work of God. Every other religion lays out what you have to do to reach God. This gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, at its very heart is about what God has done, is doing, and will do to save you. Not what we do. So, but for God's grace and His reaching out to us, we're condemned and we are helpless to do anything about it, which is humiliating or offensive to anyone with a speck of self-confidence. In fact, even the need for salvation, the concept that there is judgment that comes with sin set by this standard of this Creator God, not by themselves, that very thought is offensive. So here's a test for you to tell whether the gospel that you're hearing is true or false. Is your gospel about you or is it about God? Is it about what God has done or about what you have to do? You know, the same thing is true about evangelism, proclaiming this good news, sharing this gospel. It is the power of God that works and accomplishes anything in evangelism, which is both humbling and reassuring at the same time. It's humbling in that you, as the person sharing the gospel, bring little to the table past your faithfulness to share. But it's also reassuring in the sense you're not responsible for the result. If things don't go the way you want it to, there is freedom that you know that is not based on your skill. But it's the power of God. So let me illustrate this with a story of the first time I ever shared the gospel with an adult. And after hearing the gospel, God in His grace chose it for that time for this man to believe for the first time. And God, again in His grace, orchestrated this in a way that I could take absolutely no credit for it whatsoever. I was in a prison in Huntsville as a visitor. It was the first time I'd ever done prison ministry. It was my second day there, and by this point in time, I'd probably shared the gospel about 30 or 40 times. And I was getting my pitch down. I was not a pastor at the time. I was a salesman, actually. I thought I was a really good salesman, so I'd been working on my pitch. 
fact, I'd pretty much memorized this little track that they were having us use. So I walk up to the cell, and there's a man sitting on his bunk, and I say, hey, would you like to talk? And he comes over to the bars, and in a very thick accent in broken English says, I don't really speak English, which is a problem because I don't speak Spanish past ordering tacos at Don Juan's. So, what did I do? I reached into this little packet of stuff that they'd given us, and they'd given us a Spanish track. And I pulled this out, and it was the same content, organized in the same order, the same sequence, except for it was in Spanish. So I got mine out in English. I gave him the one in Spanish. And we read it out loud together. Him in Spanish, me in English. It asks questions. I ask them in English. He answers in Spanish. I have no idea what he's saying. And we get all the way to the end of the track. And the track says, Do you believe that you're a, sa or a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead? And the man said, See. Sí. And for the first time in his life, he'd said that. And as tears are going down his face and in my face, we're crying in different languages, if that's possible. And in that moment, I saw the power of God to bring a dead man to life. And it had absolutely nothing to do with the words I said or how effective I was in saying them. It was God's power in salvation. And then God, in his sense of humor, to make sure I didn't take any pride at all for even showing up and being faithful to share, this man hands me this stack of letters. It's probably about 15 letters, and they're kind of greasy, and they're worn, and the, the letters are kind of smudged, but I can see the postmark on it. It's about five years' worth of letters from a nun in Laredo who has been praying for this man and sharing the gospel with him in letters. For five years. And today, that day, was the day that God chose for him to believe. It wasn't my faithfulness for showing up. It wasn't even the nun's faithfulness. It was God's power in salvation. So that's the offense of the gospel. It's the power of God that leaves no room for human pride. So let's turn to the operation of the gospel. How does it work? And we've just said that it's the power of God to, to save. The salvation that the gospel accomplishes is a work of God from the very beginning, foreknowledge, all the way to the end, glorification. As Paul lays out later in Romans 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And in chapter 9, verse 16, even more directly, he says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So how does that work? If we go back to verse 16 and continue reading, the salvation that the gospel brings by God's power 
is to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. There are two points in these phrases that I want to emphasize in the passage. The first is the gospel is good news for everyone who believes. Paul says it plainly. And this belief is more than just intellectual assent. It's not agreeing to a set of facts. This is putting your trust in the gospel to solve the biggest problem you have. It is your sin that separates you from a righteous God. Salvation throughout all the Bible has always been about faith, about belief. The sovereign, omnipotent, gracious God has decreed that human belief, that human choice is a genuine act. But at the same time, Paul's very clear, it is not a work and it does not in itself obligate God in any way other than the fact that he's promised that that's the way of salvation. And this salvation has come to the Jew first and then also the Greek. So what does that mean? First, it's another way of saying everyone. Here the Greek by context means Gentiles, everyone who is not a Jew. It's not limiting to a particular ethnic group like, sorry if you're French, this doesn't apply to you. He's saying that this applies to everyone. The only thing that can exclude you from this powerful salvation is your unbelief. Not race, not class, nothing but unbelief. So salvation is only to those who believe, yet it is also available for all who do believe. But the text also says to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Why did Paul follow an inclusive statement like everyone who believes, with something that gives a, a firstness or a priority to Jews. Now, because I'm a graduate of a seminary, DTS, that believes, rightly, that there is an ongoing specific role of the Jewish people, the believing remnant of the Jewish people, and the nation of Israel and God's plan of salvation, and because Bethel is a part of a Bible church tradition that generally believes that, but most importantly, because it's right here in the text. I want to spend a little time explaining what this firstness means. Here's what this firstness, this priority doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there ever is or ever was or ever will be a separate way of salvation for Jews. Salvation has always been by grace through faith and on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ. And the Jews do not have any priority in righteousness or merit. They don't start a little bit ahead of the rest of us. And for that matter, Gentiles don't either. We all have the same footing at the base of the cross. So here's what it is. The Jews have priority over Gentiles as the chosen people of God. How do they have priority? In Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham and his descendants freely from all the peoples in the world to bless them through His covenant and promise. Now this might surprise you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Cowboys are God's team or that Texas is God's country. And both of those may be in fact true. But there are many passages that outline the special role that Israel plays in God's plan of salvation. 
The second is the Jews have priority over Gentiles as the keeper of God's special revelation, the Old Testament scriptures and the covenants which contain them. In Romans 3.1, Paul asks this question, what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? And he answers in verse 2, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What we refer to as the Old Testament was first the Hebrew Bible. What Paul calls the oracles of God includes the covenants that are still in effect today. And it was given first to them and it was preserved by them. The third way that Jews have a priority over Gentiles is that the Messiah himself, Jesus of Nazareth, was a Jew. He came to this earth first as a Jew and he came to the Jews. In Romans 9.5, Paul brings his list of privileges for the Jews to a climax with these words, from the Jews is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Jesus, our Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, was Jewish. Which is why Jesus tells the woman at the well that salvation comes from the Jews. Fourth, the Jews have a priority over the Gentiles in that Paul evangelized Jews first whenever he brought the gospel into a new area. You probably know the pattern. He shows up into a new town. Where does he go? He goes straight to the synagogue. That was his pattern. Stop one was the synagogue. And finally, for any of you who are Jewish here in the room who are starting to feel really good about your Jewishness, Number five, Jews have a priority in both blessing and judgment. In Romans 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. In other words, the priority that the Jews have, the advantages that they have, if they refuse the blessing that comes with belief, it will then result in a priority for judgment. So we started with the offense of the gospel. It's wholly a work of God, offending the pride of man. And then the operation of the gospel, how it works in everyone who believes. And now in verse 17, we see the outcome of the gospel. Verse 17 says, For in it, this is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The first outcome or the result of the gospel is that God is the righteousness of God is revealed. It's in the present, it's actually is continuing to be revealed. It's not something that only happened in the past, it's something that is continuing to be revealed today through the gospel. And since this term, the righteousness of God, is used throughout Romans, and, and I believe these two verses are the theme of Romans, I think what Paul has in here is a range of meaning for the righteousness of God that includes the three major ways he uses it throughout Romans. Which means I take the righteousness of God to include three things. The first 
This is an attribute of God. It refers to His justice and His promise-keeping nature. It encompasses both His redemption and salvation, but also His perfection and His judgment and wrath, as we see in verse 18 that's also being revealed. That's the first way. But the second way, it's also a status given to believers. What we call forensically or legally or declaratively, where this guilty sinner is declared righteous. They still are guilty, yet their status and their relationship has changed, and now they are righteous. Not based on anything in them, but it's the very righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ that is transferred to them. That's justification by faith. But not only is it an attribute of God and a status given by God to those who believe, it's also an activity of God that continues to be revealed. The righteousness of God includes the saving intervention of God in history, predicted by the prophets, displayed on the cross, and revealed even today and tomorrow in the preaching of the gospel. So that's the first outcome. The preaching of the gospel results in a greater knowledge of the righteousness of God. The second outcome is seen at the end of the verse where it says, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I always understood this to mean this is kind of an admission. Admonition. You believers, you try harder to live by faith. But as I wrestled with the Greek this week, I think the better translation, it's a little wooden, but is this. The one who is righteous by faith will have life. You know, often life is synonymous in the Bible with eternal life, which is certainly true here. But it's also not only a future promise that after death you're going to go to heaven to be with Jesus, but there are also instances in Romans and specifically Paul where he uses it in the same way Jesus does. In John 10.10, when Jesus says that the reason he came was so that we could have abundant life today. This life we can experience now, an abundant life, a new life, a life where we experience the power of God on a regular basis. Romans 6, 4, Paul says, in the same way that Christ was raised from the dead, we should walk in the newness of life. He's not talking about after you die. He's talking about that very day that you believe. So how do we do, how do, we do that? I think what the text says here today is we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, several times a day. And if we won't or we can't, we need to preach the gospel to others or others need to preach it to us even if we're already a believer. You might be saying, wait, I'm already saved. I said the prayer a long time ago. I believe, why do I need to hear the gospel? And the Greek grammar helps us a little bit here. These two verses we've been studying today are actually subordinating subordinate clauses, which means they support or modify the primary clause. The primary clause is actually in verse 15. Where Paul says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul's writing the letter to a church full of believers 
And he wants to share the gospel with them. He's not ashamed to do it because it's the power of God unto salvation. And if we go back a little further, he says in verse 13 that he expects to reap a harvest among them. And he says also to the Gentiles too. So he expects in the church with the believers to have some sort of harvest. Which means that even if you don't think you need to hear the gospel, Paul thinks that believers, church-going Christians, need to continue to hear the gospel. So the outcome of the proclamation of the gospel is a greater understanding, an ongoing, continuing to revealing an experience of the righteousness of God and a life that is abundant now and everlasting eternally for everyone who believes. So what does that tell us about evangelism? Because Paul understands verse 16 and 17. He says he's eager to share the gospel. He's eager. I can tell you that in my experience personally and just observing, particularly in a church setting here in the Bible Belt, there are very few of us, myself included, who wake up every day eager to share the gospel, expecting to share the gospel. And I think it's because our gospel has gotten too small. It's become just a get-out-of-hell card free. And while it does that, it is what justifies us and declares us righteous, which is awesome and vitally important and decisive for all of history, but there's also more. There is abundant life. There is deeper understanding, as Paul says, of the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So let me go back to my marriage illustration. I said I love Serena more today than I did the day we were married almost 25 years ago. Six kids, all the changes, all our struggles. I've watched the Lord work in Serena and in our marriage. And, and because of what I know about her today, what I have experienced with her over the last 25 years, I love her even more. But what if none of that happened? What if the sum total of my conception of marriage started and ended in that ceremony? If it was just the actual act of getting married? That moment we were declared husband and wife, and now 25 years later, that's all I had to look back on. That moment long ago when life changed, when my status changed, and the relationship changed, but that was it. Nothing since then. And then ask, if that were you, would you be shameless in talking about the love of your life? You know, John Stott says it this way. He says, the greatest single hindrance to personal evangelism is the secret poverty of our own spiritual experience. It's like we've been married for 25 years and all we can look to 
is that moment in the ceremony. We haven't seen or felt or experienced the power of God in salvation, the power of the gospel since that moment. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be spiritually poor like that. I don't want that for you either. And so as I close today, I want to borrow a phrase from the missions world. It's a popular saying that says, you either are a missionary or you need one. But today I'd change that to say, you either are an evangelist or you need one. So which are you going to be? My prayer is for me and for you and for our church is that we would preach the gospel to ourselves every day and to others with enthusiasm and eagerness so that we would fall deeper in love with God and that we would experience the power of God not only in salvation but in abundant life today and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious in that you've revealed yourself to us in your word, most perfectly in your son. That you've given us a glimpse of your righteousness. And then in your mercy that we can see your power at work to bring dead men and women to life through belief in your Son, through reliance on Him to pay the price for our sin. Father, I pray that every day we would wake up with that truth first and foremost in our minds and in our hearts. And it would create in us as we understood your gospel, understood your power and your righteousness in a new and different way, in a deeper way each day, that that would spill out to those around us, to our friends and co-workers and family members who would see through us that same kind of shameless love that we feel at times in our lives towards things that are not permanent and fleeting. Father, as I sit here in this room and I know in my life there are men and women who we love and know who do not know you. Who've not experienced the relief of forgiveness. Who continue to struggle and strive to please you, to please themselves, or to please some unknowable standard. Father, as we sit here today, I pause to think of people even by name that we each individually would pray that in your mercy and in your grace, not because of words coming out of our mouth, not because of anything that is good or right in us, but because of your power alone for the sake of your name alone, in your grace and mercy, Father, that you would call them to know and trust in your Son. Father, we confess that's nothing that we can do, we can manufacture in ourselves that is purely a work of you. 
And so we rest in your goodness. We rest in your righteousness and your power. And trust you, Father, to do that. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, which is the only name that can be prayed to give us access to you. Pray that in the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.